Well, welcome everyone. Welcome again. This is Life in the Peloton. Thanks to Rafa. I'm Mitch Docker. We've got a great episode coming up for you. Andre Lagersh. I mentioned him in the last episode. But Rafa, you've heard me say it before, what makes them so good, you're wondering? Is it the kit? Is it the quality of the kit? Is it the design of the kit? Or is it this culture they're trying to create? This feeling, this love for cycling? I sat down with one of the designers, Nikki Hodge, and I asked him this question. What are you trying to do when you're designing these kits? What is the main focus? What are you actually trying to achieve to get that design onto the kit? I think it was like you said in your previous podcast when you talked about Lockie stuff, like trying to take stuff from outside the world of cycling, you know? That's what we're trying to find, whether it's culture, art, music, whatever it may be, try and not, you know, broaden the horizons. Broaden the horizon. I love that. They're trying to look outside of the world of cycling and bring it back in. Bring that culture, that feeling that we love in our normal day life and bring it back in and put it on kits. It's awesome. I love it. Now to today's episode. Are the best pro cyclists simply born that way? If so, is it mum or dad that give us those genes? What would happen if we raced Grand Tours for six weeks long? Dr. Andre Lagersh is a sports cardiologist who's worked with top athletes, lots of pro cyclists, including myself. And he's going to give us the answers to these questions. I spoke with him last week in Melbourne. I sat down with him and I asked him important questions about hearts and performances. As you know, we have to get these heart checks as a pro cyclist, a world tour cyclist, these obligatory UCI heart checks every year. So I asked him all about that. Why are we getting these? What's the purpose of this? And also, I asked him the elusive question, his position on training and beers or alcohol. That question we really don't want to know the answer to really, but we get into that. We find out all that and what is happening with the tickers inside of us as pro athletes, post pro athletes, and also your everyday Joe Blow. So guys, sit back and listen to this one. It's a really interesting episode. I certainly had a great time sitting back and finding out all this stuff I've always wanted over the years. Here he is, Andre Lagersh. All right, here we are. I'm sitting down in the Rafa Clubhouse. We're upstairs this time. It's a really nice setting. I'm sitting here with Andre Lagersh. Um, Andre, welcome to the podcast, mate. Welcome to the Rafa Clubhouse. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Have you been here before? I haven't, actually. I'm impressed by the whole setup. It's uh, very nice. I've actually been past the front because it's a really nice lane that this whole thing sits in. I thought, oh, I should go back, but first time inside. It's nice, isn't it? And we just kicked all the staff out, um, sort of stamped our foot of authority and said hey we're ready to record get out so let's get going let's have a chat i want you to tell everyone a little bit about yourself um i know a little bit about you you've tested my heart over the last few years but i'm going to let you take it away and explain a little bit about because you haven't had the traditional way to where you are now as a cardiologist um I'm, before i sort of say the wrong thing i'm going to let you explain exactly how you've got to where you are right now So I'll try to make a long road somewhat short. So um, uh, when I was a medical student, I sort of mixed that with doing a bit of endurance sport myself. That was kind of my dream. But like every doctor or or cardiologist, I'm a failed athlete. I was never good enough, um, but I managed to sort of combine my passion. And so finished medicine, did cardiology, did some research during my cardiology training on, on sort of Ironman triathletes. And then, and um, then, when I finished cardiology, I did a PhD looking at um, the changes that take place in the heart of an athlete. Then I spent five years working in Leuven in Belgium for what's called a postdoc, or after doing a PhD. Um, returned back here in 2013 and work at St Vincent's Hospital and the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute, um, both working as a sort of, in a way, run-of-the-mill cardiologist uh, with an interest in athletes, and then half my time is spent doing research, and a lot of a lot of that agenda is is looking at athletes. I think that's what makes you so good is that when I first met you, it would have been about 2013 or. I want to say 2013 because it was very early in my Green Edge period and I joined that team in 2012. One thing I connected with you straight away opposed to, and this is nothing against opposed to other cardiologists or doctors, is you just sort of got it because you're an athlete. You know, you're an athlete yourself um, opposed to being a, a doctor or, you know, someone who's looking at that side of it. You get the athlete side of it. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, sometimes that comes down to the management of some conditions where the athlete's perspective is that, um, you know, that they put a huge priority on doing sport as part of their life, whereas perhaps some cardiologists almost sort of feel like sometimes if they're saying, look, you should cut back on your exercise or stop doing it. Sometimes I get the feeling that they think they're doing the person a favour. You know, mm. you don't have to ride your bike anymore for 25 hours a week or something. Whereas uh, it, I think it is probably a, a little bit of a niche area where you have some insight into just how, the know, mentality. how passionate yeah. and the mentality and the, and the love for it. What exactly is a cardiologist? So a cardiologist is a heart specialist. So there's there's a range, you know, in a way we where um, some people say we're either plumbers, electricians or photographers, meaning that the plumbers are the people who, who go in and, and fix arteries, do angiograms and put stents in blocked arteries. The electricians are the ones who look after when you have a heart rhythm problem and then the photographers are the ones who do ultrasound and MRI. And as a sports cardiologist, I'm sort of a bit of a halfway between a, a photographer and, a, and an electrician, sort of a lot of interest in looking at the heart, looking at its function, and then also how that sort of, how that interacts with problems that people have with the electrics and with heart rhythm problems. I guess you're probably wondering, or not you, but everyone listening is probably wondering why I'm talking to you today. Well, we've had that relationship from my early years in Greenwich, and that's, a, in the beginning, a bit of a forced relationship because as a professional cyclist, as a world tour athlete, you have to have these regulated checks every year or every two years as well, a different check. It's called the, well, I call it the heart checks, but it's, it's a cardiology check where you've got to have an ECG or an echocardiogram, a resting ECG. Tell me, because I just sort of went, yeah, I've got to have my, my heart check every year. I'll just get that done and get the tick and I'm on my way. Why did I have to have those tests every year? And what are those tests trying to do for all the World Tour athletes? What is the UCI trying to avoid seeing happen? Or what are they trying to detect in these tests? So cycling was one of the first sports to really take this up. But the, the whole purpose of that was to pick up the rare athlete who might have some problems with the sort of the if you like the shape of the heart or the electrics of the heart that could put them at increased risk of serious arrhythmias or dying suddenly so we call it screening and mm. it's looking for the approximately one in three thousand people who might who we might find something um, pretty significant on the testing that could put them at risk of a really serious problem it's it's interesting because if we did that in the general population we would probably have a higher chance like in a way cyclists are the least appropriate group to do it because there's a bit of survival of the fittest mm. it's it's hard to have a significant heart problem and be riding at the front of the peloton in the world tour so yep. you, what you're saying is the guys who may have had problems before got weeded out before they even got to the world tour exactly yeah. so the majority of people with a significant heart problem would not be able to mm. cycle at the highest level but there's still a very small, occasionally, even in the fittest people, we'll do an ECG or an echo and, and see something really significant. Are you quite impressed when you see that? You're like, Jesus, mate, how yeah. have you made it this far? Yeah, yeah. and, it's, and it's, it is really rare. And then there is a degree to we, when you do see that, um, the, we try to sort of you know, treat it or whatever, and then... In some circumstances, hopefully, you know, usually very rare, we have to tell people that they, you know, that they are better off not continuing to compete. What kind of things will you send through in a report, say, to the UCI that will flag something where the UCI might stop a rider then competing or need treatment or something else? Like, I don't, I don't actually know of anyone that received a red flag but what would be a red flag so early in the process there were more red flags coming out of italy mm. um, because they have kind of a uh, in a way a lower threshold for saying oh that abnormality is a problem um, and so people started to go sort of to other sources but if there was really a problem with the heart there's there's a number of changes in the shape of the heart and the and the function of the heart so how effectively it squeezes that give us an idea that there could be a what we call a cardiomyopathy or a heart muscle weakness mm. 
And in that situation, we would then do further tests, maybe genetic tests. So it would start down a whole trail, which might end up with someone being told that they've got a serious heart problem. I must admit, I'm trying to think, but in, in all the times I've screened cyclists, professional cyclists, I've never had to exclude an athlete. In mm. some other sports, like um, like football, and there have we have picked up some some abnormalities. Mm. Uh, you know, to, again, to some degree, when people are so fit in cycling, it's it is really uncommon to see you know t- to see these problems that would because most of the conditions that we're looking for are conditions that are passed down through the family Mm. and they tend to affect the heart function so so you just don't excel at sport let's talk about that now because this is something i'm really interested in because it pretty much blows my whistle anyway because i'm one of those guys athletes and their heart and then i guess you call it firstly their natural genetics just explain to everyone out there listening the difference between the average Joe Blow and a naturally genetic athlete. So whether they pursue sport or not, we're all born differently. From what I understand, you can debunk this too, that maybe I was born with slightly better genetics and that's why when I started doing sport, I, I excelled in that way. But then once I started to become a professional athlete or an athlete, I kept growing and, and my heart changed as well. So. I want you to explain first of all the genetic side of things, but then also what happens once you become an athlete too to your heart. Yeah, so I'll come back to this because we've done some research recently mm. that even fine tunes this some more. But for a long time, I've sort of been convinced that an athlete is born. Mm. Like in some ways, the most important decision you make is choosing your parents because <laughs> you you can train all you like, and if you've got the wrong genetic makeup, you just can't have the engine and the muscle that is required to create an elite athlete and when i say the engine the main changes in the heart are that the heart gets bigger and when it gets bigger that it's able because when you're going at 180 beats per minute or 190 beats per minute and you've got a big heart that heart has to be able to fill in and you know a fraction of a section a fraction of a second and then eject all that blood in a in a fraction of a second it's unbelievable to watch it's really it, you know, it's a can of Coke in, in that sort of time period that, that, get, that fills the heart and then is ejected. It's really phenomenal. And that is a special genetic makeup that enables that. Now, if you're born with the genes and you don't train, you'd never realise that. So, would you, would you, like, I was thinking about this today. I was talking to a few people about if you walked up a, you know, like, naturally genetic person, someone with a massive heart, say, and they never pursue sport. Are you going to feel those benefits walking up a set of stairs opposed to someone who's got a opposite end of the spectrum, a really bad genetics, and they're walking upstairs and go, gee, oh, I just hate walking upstairs. And someone with good genetics goes, I love walking upstairs. I don't know. That's a really bad yeah, analogy. To a degree. So I think it's more that if you, if you take you know, one person and another person and they do a few-day training camp, there'll be the one who just gets fit really quickly and the, and then one that um, hardly changes. You know, And it, it tends to sort of yeah. be a, either a vicious circle or a positive circle. And the okay. people who get into sport find that they get the rewards. You know, they, they go off and go riding with their mates and they're fitter and so they do it more and they're fitter and they do it more. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling. Whereas the people who have, if you like, bad genetics, they're the ones who go out you know go running with their or whatever get into sport and they just hardly improve and it's like you know pushing molasses and Mm. they and they so they don't really get into sport so there's a degree to which the genes create kind of the reward to then keep going okay but there's no doubt and there's lots of stories of this you know um, of people who get into sport in their 30s or 40s and discover that they actually always had the genes i mean there was one marathon runner for the uk whose name is going to escape me but he was he famously was watching the london marathon had a bet with his mates oh whilst he was having a souvlaki and a couple of beers and said (laughs) i'm going to run that next year ran a near elite time and then the next year was in the olympics at the you know in in his 30s yeah so there's 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 people who have the genes and don't know it if you like what happens though to an athlete and this is something i really found quite phenomenal when we were chatting about it i was always always interested in the growth of a heart of an athlete you know like you said it's slightly bigger heart it's a bigger pump it's able to pump that blood around easier when you naturally got it 
But as you use a muscle more, it grows. Yep. And we give us some comparisons here to someone who is just normally, you know, living a day-to-day life and and a world tour athlete who's training every day or an Olympic runner. These people who are stressing that muscle every day, it's growing. Is it twice the size? Is it three times the size? What actually happens? So it varies. So if we were to take, say, the green edge guys, there's a range of heart size. Every single one of the cyclists have an enlarged heart. At the lower end would be about one and a half times the size of a normal heart, and at the top end would be two and a half times. So in general, about double the size. So you can't you can't walk around the street and see someone's heart, but if you could, it would be like looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger versus a normal person. Mm. Like they are, it is. Uh, when we do MRI scans, so you see the heart in the chest, the the heart takes up you know a good proportion of the left side of the chest it, it, there's kind of a fight in the chest for for space in terms of the heart and the lungs are you Whereas, blown away when you say oh absolutely holy and, hell, and continue to be yeah, yeah it's really it's quite amazing the, <laughs> the hearts are so big and they're wedged at, you know wedged between the chest bone at the front the sternum and the spine at the back it goes all the way through and in fact wraps around those structures <laughs> And then all the way around. And in a normal person, it's just sort of sitting in there amongst, you know, a bit of fat and a bit of whatever. Whereas in the athlete, it's just squeezing and crying out for room. You know, wow. it's, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. If you could see it on the outside or to give you an idea as well, if, if you are walking around, you know, the, the, the difference in size of a heart is if that were height of people, you'd be talking about someone walking around who's 50 centimetres tall and someone who's two metres tall. You know, mm-hmm. it's just such a dramatic difference in terms of a characteristic. You just don't see it. But is it everything? You know, like, it just sounds right here and now, and I've heard, always heard these stories about Miguel Ingerain. He had, you know, a horse's heart. You know, yep. is, is that the be-all and end-all? Are we just talking about size of hearts? Because isn't it a combination of that working hard and i don't know what is the ideal combination that's making these great athletes it's not it's definitely not everything so for example again if we were to if i was to look at all the hearts of of you know a pro cycling team i can't go through and say right he's got the biggest heart he's the best athlete um there is a relationship between fitness and size of the heart but once you get in the top end it doesn't define everything because there's so many factors there's there's the heart then there's the muscle there's the efficiency but even within the heart as i was saying before it's it's the size of the heart is one of the determinants but it's more when you're exercising and exercising hard can that heart fill and eject efficiently and and the athlete who's able to race at a very high heart rate and at that heart rate which you know it's so let's say 180 beats per minute, that's one third of a second for every heartbeat to fill and then pump. It's really fast time intervals. And to be able to get hundreds of mils of blood in, it's like a Hoover vacuum, you know, it's Mm. like a Dyson, and then pump it out again. So you can have a big heart that just doesn't do that as efficiently or a slightly smaller heart and does it. So size Mm. isn't everything, but it is really important. Because the opposite is true as well. You can't have a small heart and generate big volumes. Mm. So everyone's got a big heart, but then we see some people who just that heart is beautifully efficient and functions as well as being big. When we talk about the growth of the heart and an athlete, you know, as we train, it gets bigger and bigger. What point does it come where it's enough's enough? You know, like if I, you know, obviously I'm retired now, I've stopped, so there's going to be no more growth. But maybe the growth stopped before. It probably did. So what what tends to happen, and it's interesting, so if we look at uh, athletes' VO2s, they tend to increase up until about sort of early to mid-20s, and then it tends to plateau. And the heart's a bit similar. It seems that most of the growth occurs even in the teenage years. We're doing a study at the moment, elite athletes 16 to 23 years, and the idea was to get them in young and then watch the growth. But in fact, once you get elite athletes, even in their 16, 17, 18, most of the growth has happened. Mm. So it, it happens early. And really? Yeah. And then it's constrained because your heart fills out your chest and it's there's only so much room in there. So, so potentially when you saw me, yep. oh, well, realistically, there was no more growth. No. So all of the improvement beyond that point is a lot to do with 
efficiency, use of oxygen, mm. um, probably a lot to do with sort psychology. of psychology. Yeah, yeah, and and, psychology, and yeah. how you move in the peloton, all of those things, because physiologically. Um, we see improvements in people's exercise capacity through those early 20s, and then it tends to plateau. So like when you said they're sort of 16 years old, like I've got a son myself who loves sport, loves running, loves riding. You know, there's always that fear of a child. You don't want to push them too hard physically, but also psychologically. What I'm just trying to think back to, because I didn't do any cycling until I was sort of 15. Yep. So all that enlargement from uh, training or let's say just sport just happened naturally for me running and just wanting it or is it just natural genetics how did that all happen up until I was 20 before I was even really pushing myself as a rider I guess what I was some of those references were before were were some of the people who came into the program having done two or three levels of two or three years of high level competition if you've just sort of started training in the last year or two then we we definitely would see both increases in heart size and in fitness but having said that I would be willing to bet that had mm. we seen you as, as a 16-year-old, your heart would have already been quite enlarged. Mm. And how much of that is genetics and how much of that's training? I reckon it's both. It's really hard to separate them, a bit like we started with. You, mm. know, you, you have to have the genetics to, um, to enable that heart growth. You, know, mm. you want a heart that can, um, where the muscle can grow and also be nice and kind of, if you like, rubbery, you know, to, to relax well and, and suck well. And, um, and that comes, you know, convinced, well, convinced with genetics. And that's why I was saying before, we've done some recent studies. There's a thing called a polygenic risk score where you can put sort of like a whole mix of someone's genes in and look at all of what we call the polymorphisms or the little the little recipe that makes up your genetics. And when we've looked at athletes at, compared to the general population in terms of heart function and heart size, athletes have a better genetic risk score. So we've now demonstrated it's not just a theory, but it's, it's really clear mm. that athletes are born with you know, better genes. Yeah. And that enables better heart function, better ability to get a larger heart. You are born as well as created. What is, and now we're drifting off sort of cardiology here, but genetics now, what part of that is from the mother? What part of that is from the father? Or it has to be from both, or you don't know? We don't know. There, there is, it's interesting because there's some theories in some situations where the, the mitochondria, which mm. are the in the in the muscles, in the peripheral muscles, are um, in part from the mother's uh, DNA, and they're a really important part of yeah. exercise. They're the bits that suck the oxygen out of the blood. So perhaps there's a bit more importance from mum than dad, mm. but it, it it's both really. You know, it's funny. You think back to yourself. You're thinking about your mum and dad, and you're like, oh yeah, I definitely got it from my dad. But then. I think of my wife now, she would have been an amazing runner if she pursued that because I can just see it in her form and her legs, you know, she's never training that much but she's got great form and I think the reason why my son is such a good runner is honestly because of her, not because of me. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about athletes now and I'm a chronic overtrainer. we all are, we, we, we're too scared to not train and I know a few who don't love training but most of us love overtraining. You know, and to be in the world tour, it's about, you know, not eating as well, staying lean, the stress of racing, all this stuff I think adds to the stress of your body and performance. And it's this, it's this balance of trying to find the right training, eating properly, managing stress to perform. But what is that effect on the cardiology on your heart? Because look, I know a few people in Melbourne anyway, who have had certain syndromes um and i'm not going to say the names quite right atrial fibrillation tracker what is it ventricular tachycardia thank you (laughs) you know these are the and i like to call it tired heart or you know um dysrhythmia things you know where where the heart's not beating properly you know talk to me a little bit about this because there are some athletes and we've heard about it where the heart does you know under stress not function exactly as we know it and there's always this question about, is that from genetics? Is that from overtraining? What is causing this kind of um, symptoms? 
So it's complex, and I'm going to separate it out a bit because heart rhythm problems like atrial fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia, they're not always because of overtraining. You can have bad luck, bad genes, a number of situations, and I'll get back to that. But mm -hmm. the overtraining in the heart is interesting because, you know, you kind of know when you've overtrained your legs or your whatever, especially, say, as a runner, if you go out and run for three hours, it's hard to run well for a few days because yeah. your legs are smashed. If you go out on the bike and you ride flat out for, for five hours, um, then the next day you'll get on the bike and your heart rate will suddenly jump 30 beats when you just start pedaling. And similarly, if you do that day in and day out, some athletes seem to develop a situation where they have difficulties getting their heart rate up. And, you know, on average at the end of the Tour de France, people's, you know, the cyclist heart rates, peak heart rates will be down 10 or 15 beats. Why is that? So we don't completely understand it, but it's probably to do with that as the heart becomes tired, it's harder for the heart to fill and pump in the short time interval. So one of the reactions is to slow the heart down and give it time to do that. Like a bit of a defense mechanism? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah sort of a protective thing. But it also is an indicator that it's really being pushed to its limits. So it, there's a lot of kind of, um, I don't know, uh, indicators that aren't always right for every individual. But certainly you know things like an increased resting heart rate in the morning or your heart rate going up really quickly when you exercise or I've often found a particularly significant one is that difficulties getting the heart rate up they are all signs that the heart's being trained pretty hard mm. and as you were saying that in a way as an elite athlete you kind of have to if you like overtrain or perhaps overreach um, you know that idea of going to a point where you're fatigued and then you more. recover yeah. more fatigue <laughs> and then you recover and you do better etc true overtraining is when you go that next step and it's 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 not good for you um, and and it it is tricky with the heart because it's not something that's easy to measure you don't get a sign from your heart you know a pain or a mm. so the heart rate can be a bit of an indicator but it is something to think about because I often say to people think about your heart as kind of, or think about your body when you're training as um as sort of muscle bones and then heart and if you're a runner say then if you're doing 400 meters on the track then you're stressing your muscles if you're running for three hours then you can get stress fractures in your bones the the type of things that are hard for the heart is sort of prolonged tempo mm. so the time trial effort that goes for two or three hours or, or even you know half an hour through to hours those sort of events uh, the heart's working at about 80% of max for a long period of time is is a stress. And it's not saying don't do it, but treat it with respect because you won't get the indication like you do from your legs of them being sore. Mm. So, you know, I guess as, as, as little red flags, um, if... If you are going out and you're feeling tired, if the heart rate races, you know, races up, and I'm not meaning heart rhythm problem, but just if it if it sort of goes up 10, 20 beats more than you would expect, or the opposite, if you can't get it up, they're all signs that you probably need to rest. And if it really becomes significant, you probably should get it checked out. That's the funny thing. Like, sorry to interrupt. It's the natural reaction is like you do a, a sprint up a hill and you can feel your heart, you can feel your lungs. That's actually sort of better than just sort of doing that, like you said there, where your legs and your lungs can cape with it, uh, uh, handle it, but you're doing it for a long period of time, that yeah. time trial. It's almost like once you go, it feels more dangerous doing like a heel rip, a heel rep where your heart rate's going to 200, 210. You're like, oh my God, my heart's going to come out of my chest. Yep. But there's a limit to it. Yep. It's when you sort of disguise it in this sort of effort that's 80%. Yep. And for long periods of time, it's for years on end, isn't it? And it's interesting because training seems to have gravitated in a whole lot of sports to a combination of a lot of low intensity and then some short episodes of absolute all out mm. and probably push more away from the really long tempo things. And, you know, I can't help but feel that that's partly because of that central fatigue or heart fatigue. If we look at the heart with ultrasound 
after you know a heavy day of the Tour de France or a, or a mountain stage or something, we can see that the heart's fatigued. Mm. Whereas if you go sprinting up a mountain for 15 minutes, the heart's function the heart's function looks fantastic. You know, it's just kung kung kung. Like you say, it feels like it's thumbing out there. Whereas that really long 80 percent. You know, the, it stresses the metabolism, it stresses everything about the heart. And again, mm. I'm not saying don't do it, but treat it with respect. Don't do it day in, day out. Mm. Um, if, if the Tour de France went for six or seven weeks, I reckon we'd see people getting in trouble. <laughs> I've always joked about whether you just do three back-to-back tour, grand tours, finish the Giro, straight onto the Tour, finish the tour straight on the Vuelta, what would we have at the end of that? We'd have some tired hearts, wouldn't yeah. we? And, and again, you know, there, there probably would be people who can handle it and people who probably, well, I'm sure that if you had really back-to-back tours, I mean, it, to me, it's not a surprise that the people who do the Giro struggle to back up with the Tour de France. And I think a lot of that is central fatigue because mm. the legs um, can recuperate pretty quickly, but that the, you know, because I guess that's the other thing I often think of, and this is particularly true for Australian athletes and Australians. You go over and do the European summer and then you come back here and you're sort of in events and that having a good bit of time off, I think, extends your career because mm-hmm. it's, um, it's really important for the body to be able to sort of take that sort of prolonged breath and recovery and get ready again. Talking about that time off, this is something I was very guilty of and I'm ashamed to say it, but sort of not ashamed, but... Burning the candle at both ends, um, this is pretty common, I wouldn't say with every cyclist, but a lot of guys, is you you have a big day out training, you come home, you go out, you meet your friends, you have a big barbecue, you haven't really recovered from your training ride because it's the off season, you're just preparing, you have a big barbecue, you get on the booze, you know, a few beers, a few glasses of wine, next morning you get up, you feel really guilty, you have a big day training, so you go out, you stress it a bit more because you just want to achieve your training realistically you probably should have had a day off after that big day plus on the booze but you just push on this extra stress and this is something i underestimated for a long time it's not just putting stress on my body and what i think oh, i'm too tired whatever it's putting a lot of stress on my heart as well this what is this adding to the system it's interesting that alcohol because we've learned a lot about alcohol over the last five years that that even at moderate and certainly at, at sort of binge drinking, it, it really increases inflammation, including inflammation of the heart. So um, the questions before about atrial fibrillation, there's a really co- strong relationship between alcohol and atrial fibrillation. Just before you go on, just explain what atrial fibrillation is for the yeah. gomads like myself out there <laughs> so atrial fibrillation the the top chambers of the heart which are less important they're kind of priming chambers um but they can develop this rhythm problem um which which causes the atrium to to not beat um in in a sort of organized way and it causes high heart rates it's not life-threatening but it, it's inefficient for the heart, and so the heart can sort of wear out more quickly. And also it can cause, um, it increases the chance of having a stroke because mm. clots can form in the heart. Not so much in young or middle-aged athletes, but as we get older, we really worry about stroke with atrial fibrillation. So broadly, it's not life-threatening, but is a major nuisance. You don't want to have atrial fibrillation. There are some good treatments for it, and, and it's a whole section in itself. But you don't want to have it. And, and it is something that occurs more frequently in athletes. So it is one of the, amongst all of the really healthy things about being an athlete, including the fact that on average you live longer, one of the little stings in the tail is that you're somewhere around three to seven times more likely to have atrial fibrillation. There's a whole lot of potential reasons for that. One of them is that the heart gets bigger and that stretch on the atrium is one of the factors. And another one um, can be alcohol. And the combination of, of having, you know, having half a dozen beers and then compensating by training hard in the next morning is probably the worst possible mm. uh, recipe. And burning the candle at both ends. Yep. So you should respect the beers and have a day off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and or 
not have the beers. Yeah, not have too. Not <laughs> I'm have trying too to work many. beers in. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for moderation, yeah. and and I'm not saying that people need to need to. We're sitting here with a beer now, but um, saying that people have to be teetotalers. And similarly, there is something for hitting the reset button every now and then, uh, and and having having a bit of a night out. But you do have to respect it, and mm. and the combination of of big nights and somehow saying I can make up for that by doing totally. an extra hour on the bike is probably the worst thing you can do. It's definitely my mentality, and I know a lot of guys out there listening who will yep. know I'm talking about uh, <laughs> will know that is the way we approach things. Let's talk about someone who's not necessarily a professional athlete. Um, you know, someone who's maybe working, you know, a pretty, you know, got their own business or working a really hard job. They've got three kids at home. I've got three kids, so I know what that's like. You know, and they're pretty stressed out, and they're just like, ah. Wife goes, let's just get away. Let's just get across. Let's go on a holiday. And they, as soon as they get away, again, the relaxing thing to do as an Australian anyway is a few cold ones and get straight into it, potentially setting themselves up for a bit of disaster there because their body's really stressed. And like you said, the alcohol, even though it's a quite a mentally relaxing thing, it adds stress to the heart there. It can also be achieved a different way, even if you're not an athlete. Yeah, and, and also sometimes what happens is in amongst the busy lifestyle, you you um, you do a bit of training, but there's just so many stressors. You get away on a holiday, and you can, as you say, have a few cold beers, and also it's finally that opportunity to do some training. And you, you know, um, professional athletes are usually very good at sort of saying, right, I'm going to increment this by by a little bit each. Way. Everything's a build. Whereas sometimes for, for amateurs, you just get out there and go, oh, fantastic. Mm. I'd go and smack it with five hours on the mountain bike and then have some beers and then the next day. And especially as we get into middle age and beyond, um, I often say that kind of when you're young, you can just, you, you need a little bit of madness to be free. You know, your mate says, let's go, let's go and smash it and you... You do, but when you get to middle age, you kind of do have to start thinking about um, not doing things out of the blue, not changing mm. things too dramatically. Because not only things like heart rhythm problems, but you know the middle-aged guy who has some gunk in the artery and doesn't know it, and then suddenly goes out and just has this massive you know amount of exercise. The exercise is really good, but if it comes as out of the blue, that's when you can run into trouble. So that sort of holiday heart of that combination mm. of of you know having having some drinks and and really going um, going hard. Uh, do you see happen. that? Do you see that? Is that we, is that the term holiday heart? We do. I mean, I, one thing I hesitate with here is that one of the things that frustrates me a bit is that when people mm. do have heart problems, they often look for blame. You yeah. know, they sort of go, "Oh, what did I do wrong? I ate the wrong thing on Saturday, or I that was it. And, this is that one thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or, or I've been doing whatever wrong. We don't think about that when we get, if someone has, has a bowel polyp or, or something. For some reason, I think because of the life being it adds, people have really thought that mm. the heart is a lifestyle thing. And it is a bit, but so are a lot of things. Mm. Whereas some people, unfortunately, just kind of have heart problems. They're shit out of luck. Mm. You know, or we don't understand it very well. And I'd say so many, particularly athletes who come in with a heart problem, have this burden of guilt what did I do wrong and and I like to kind of emphasize that even though these things are important build up to things slowly try not to drink too much have a good balanced diet it's not everything mm. and and one don't feel guilty and the other thing that's really important is the opposite which is that athletes when they're feeling fit feel that some you know things can't go wrong I've often got people coming in saying they've come in with a heart attack and they say I was too I was too fit I can't have had a heart attack and it is less common but there's there's no you're not invincible you're not invincible there's no insurance policies lots of burn the candle at both ends anyway yeah yeah that's right yeah and some people who don't burn the candle they do everything right can still have a heart attack or can still have a heart rhythm problem so you know you you've just got to do what you can, be sensible, but at the end of the day, also be alert to the small possibility that something doesn't feel right, get it checked out. Let's talk about something slightly different, but in the same sort of realm is a couple of athletes and someone who maybe, when you said before, you were doing all these tests and it was checked up and maybe sort of slipped through the gaps or didn't get recognised is a guy, a very talented athlete, someone I grew up with out at the Brunswick Cycling Club, William Walker. 
Um, he rode professionally overseas with Rabobank, Australian champion, was on the trajectory to be an amazing athlete with a VO2 max, you know, up there with Lance Armstrong, all these sort of things. And actually, you know, in the end, had a symptom of, what's the right word here, trachycardia. Um, how does this all come about? Is this genetics or is this, is, you know, there's always been this, Will, as a young guy, and I always remember this because I sort of was in awe of him, was an, an epic trainer. Yep. This guy was going out with the pros. He was going out with Baden Cook and and Maddie Wilson down Beach Road doing motor paces. And I was happy if I could do, you know, a 60, 100K ride. He was doing 1,000K weeks. So I typically jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, Will Walker, he overtrained. What is this What is this theory? Is there such a thing? And, you know, Emma Carney is a, and is an amazing triathlete. And there's she got labelled as you know, tired heart, she overtrained, stressed her body from a young age. Is this even true? You know, is this, is this just something people have made up or is it genetics? Um, before I address that, just a little shout out to Will because yeah. what people won't know is that after his uh, professional cycling career, he did a few things and then he decided he wanted to be a doctor, trained up, and he's actually just started as, as one of my interns at St. Vincent's wow. Hospital. So um, he was on the ward with me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, an incredible individual and I think that the sort of you know the passion and drive that he put into cycling he puts into all the areas of his life a, a big uh, admiration for Will but coming back to the question it the you know can you in a way can you overtrain the heart and then cause arrhythmias it is interesting we don't completely understand so firstly those heart rhythm problems like ventricular tachycardia are different to atrial fibrillation they're serious heart rhythm problems even life-threatening and they're uncommon about one in five thousand athletes would suffer a heart problem like that we don't really know but it seems that maybe it is more common in endurance athletes like cyclists than the general population Mm. Because it's uncommon, it's really hard to be certain about that, but it seems like if you look at triathlon, for example, you know, Greg Welch, Emma Carney, Bruce Thomas, they're all sort of contemporaries and they all had a similar heart problem, all have a defibrillator for a condition that's extremely uncommon. And Mm. it just, and you know, we'll walk, there's really quite a number of, so there's a number of us who suspect that it is more common. It's easy to suspect that, isn't it? It is. And then, so what is it? Is it? Is it sort of too much training, if you like? Is it genetics? Um, I've got a little bit of a theory at the moment, which is a bit of an odd one, but where we often see the inflammation and things that cause the rhythm problems are often at the front of the heart next to the chest bone and started to wonder whether it's even the rub from, Mm. from the heart being sort of pushed up during heavy exercise, during heavy breathing. Because of the size of the heart. Yeah, Mm. so sort of like you get... Um, you know chafing on your nipples or between your thighs when you're running uh, because you're running to the heart might get a similar thing so there's a number of reasons Mm. that we're sort of looking into things and it's probably a complex but uh, complex combination of all of them it is interesting with people like Will and Emma Carney and a number of people how often it is people that are absolutely kind of Mm. prodigious trainers I don't we just don't know enough about it to be sort of setting guidelines do this saying, or don't do this yeah, yeah don't try don't ride more than 800 kilometers a week or something like that because there's people who do mm. um you know there's there's people who have ridden every grand tour for you know 10 years look at adam hansen exactly you know what i mean yeah three a week three a year for 21 grand tours yep so for for every for every will there's an adam hansen type sort of situation so there's something individual there's something perhaps in the genes that and that's one of the things we're we're kind of looking at we just don't understand it very well but it it does seem that unfortunately a a small number of highly trained athletes do have this um, susceptibility to these serious heart rhythm problems it's it really important to put in context Mm -hmm. though because it is uncommon um, and it's a little sting in the tail versus the health benefits for the average athlete that are, that are massive. Well, let's talk about that now because I'm on the other side of the hill. I'm, one just, I'm just like, you, you are so fit, by the way. How are you fit? I'm looking across here. I've got to take a photo of you for this for the show notes. I've got this professional athlete opposite me. 
what actually happens to me now? I've got this enormous heart here, you know, that's oozing out of my skin. What's going to happen to me now? Am I just, is it going to retract? Is it dangerous for me now to go cold turkey, sit on the couch, couch potato it, and just have this enormous heart that was used to functioning like a racehorse? What's going to happen? Should I detrain? You do, so it would be dangerous to just sit on the couch, but not because of the heart, but because because <laughs> you essentially within a few years would lose some of the benefits and, and you'd you know, put yourself at risk of diabetes and all of okay. those diseases that are sedentary. But in terms of the heart, there's sort of this kind of, if you like, myth that you get a big heart and you need to gradually bring it down in size. That all happens pretty pretty naturally. And also, if we look at, which we've, we've just been doing a study in, um, in former Olympic rowers in their sort of, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and most of them, even the ones who have stopped training, have still a bit of an enlarged heart. Mm. We don't know whether that's partly the genetics and they had a big heart and that's what made them Olympic. But it's likely that your heart will remain bigger than average, you know, for the rest of your life. There's not, there's not really any, you know, I'm, I'm not worried or say, look, you need to do this amount of training. We need to watch it closely. Your heart will get a bit smaller. It'll stay big. It'll function mm. well. One of the things that we know about athletes is their risk of what we call heart failure or the heart not being able to work properly is so much lower than the general mm. population. Because it's worked well in your 20s, 30s, 40s, the chances of, of it failing or you know that's term it's is like when a it well becomes oiled weak. machine is it yep. yeah you develop a you develop a v8 mm. and you've got you know it can fall down to a v6 or a v4 um, and still function perfectly mm. well whereas if some people get up to a v4 it falls down to a sort of motorbike engine and they're in trouble <laughs> it is a bit like that yeah, right. That's what I was going to ask you. The benefits for me being a pro, you know, or even an athlete for, let's say, 20 years more or less since I started, is that. It's just a well-oiled machine. You know, the arteries are supposedly nice and clean. Um, the the actual muscle of the heart is, is pumping really well. And let's not speak necessarily about elite athletes now. Every Joe Blow, you know, your, your weekend warrior, or even just my parents or people of that age, people who are getting out and just doing general activity... I think the general point to put across here is like exercise is good. Is it just exercise? Is it diet? Is it the combination of everything? What, you know, to take away point here, what is what is your sort of ethos that you follow and that you like to prescribe to anyone who asks you? Well, it probably is a combination of all of the above, but in a way I don't I don't really care because mm. most people who are doing sport tend to have a good diet tend to have you know everything tends to go together what we know about athletes olympic athletes right down to the average person is on average they live longer on average they have mm. fewer heart attacks on average they have fewer strokes on average they have less diabetes everything on average is better and people live longer the thing and i keep saying on average because i think it's important is that if you do all the right things, you give yourself every chance of living a longer, healthier life. But medicine is also about the individual. So don't think, uh, I've done all the right things, therefore I'm guaranteed of a long, healthy mm. life. Because you still have to respect the fact that even the healthiest person can have a problem. You know, there are people who, um, you know, who are the healthiest, best cyclists who have a heart attack in their 40s. Far less common. But it can happen. Mm. It's like, you know, uh, it would be nice not to mention COVID in a podcast. But, you know, we keep saying if, if, if you're young and healthy, you're less likely to have, you know, severe illness with COVID. Absolutely true. Still, very occasionally it happens. And it's mm. a bit like that. Unfortunately, life keeps us guessing. Um, and that's why I always see my job because one of the things that happens with athletes is sometimes they have serious symptoms they go in and see their doctor and their doctor's like, ah, you're too healthy to have a problem on your way. Mm. Whereas I've seen enough people that are super healthy but have a significant problem that I still have to treat them as an individual. What inspires you now as, you know, as I said, you're a very fit guy. You're already an inspiring athlete early on in your life. Um, what inspires you every day when you're working with these athletes or, um, you know, Will Walkers of the World? You come in, you see them, you see their physiology. What's inspiring you every day to keep fit, to keep pushing the, the limits of your own body? 
Well, there's there's kind of two sides of that. One is often say what I'd like to do is make exercise kind of safe and healthy for everyone. So each of those rare, condi- you know, the Will Walkers and the Emma Carneys of the world, I'd love to come to make some discoveries where we can intervene before they really have a problem or when they have a problem to, to look after them well and make sure mm. things are as good as possible. So that's that's sort of one thing that keeps me ticking. The other is I still, bizarrely, I still love looking at a good heart like on an MRI or echo during exercise. It's it's a it's an absolute marvel. I, I, I kind of somehow <laughs> weirdly can't get past that. And then the third thing that I absolutely love is I've got a little, I've got a young research team and then in the hospital we've got young doctors and sort of seeing them get excited about similar things that I, I absolutely love that so if we can inspire one or two people you know if you know if if will comes through medicine and kind of you know gets a little bit excited by some of the things we're doing then that that's that's a huge win well we spoke before this podcast i'm going to come in and do some tests um a little bit against my will but <laughs> because they, they require maximal efforts and um Andre's going to get to see my hard work. And we, I think if he's up for it, I wouldn't mind doing a few tests over the next few years. If the podcast lasts that long, we'll tune in again when we see some changes or maybe not um, and just sort of retouch on what happens with a retired guy. For sure. We'd love to, I'd love to do that. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the pod. Pleasure. Thanks, Mitch. Well, I hope you took something out of that. I certainly did. Some things I didn't love hearing, especially about the alcohol stuff. But actually, at the end of the day, it's really good to know what is really affecting us out there because you think you're invincible. I certainly do as a pro athlete or as an ex-pro athlete. I thought I could just burn the candle at both ends. If I had a big nine on the piss, I'd just smash it out on the bike the next day. That is clearly not the right thing to do. Thank God I'm sort of finding out now and hopefully I can save myself from all the damage I've done over the years. Super, super interesting. I really did love talking to Andre. He's a great guy and he's just so passionate about cardiology, about the hearts. I love hearing that, that he's still just happy looking at these images of the hearts. Isn't that great? We've got a great episode coming up, Talking Luft. You're never going to guess who I've got, Big George Hincappy. Next week, Talking Luft, I've got Big George on. We're going to talk a little bit about the 2001 Classics. That was his year. I really want to get into that. He is a diehard Classics man at heart. Even though we saw him in all those Grand Tours doing an amazing job, riding the front for Cadell Evans, riding the front for Lance Armstrong. Actually, at heart, he's a Classics man. So I'm a Classics man too, and we're going to really get into that next week in Talking Luft. This podcast doesn't happen without a lot of support and our biggest support this year comes from Rafa. I love having those guys on board and I love working with them outside of the podcast as well. I'm really lucky to be able to wear their kit around every day as a writer. Thanks again to Lara behind the scenes who's doing a great job and of course Will Jones who put this episode together. Guys, thanks for listening and until next time, I'll speak to you then. Cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.